Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Peter began to speak to Cornelius and to his whole household. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, as we celebrate the baptism of our Lord, we run into a saint of God that is not as well known as some other saints. His name is Cornelius. It's a biblical name that just never really caught on. Not like John, or Mark, or David. Cornelius never really became that famous of a name. I remember there was a Cornelius Bennett who used to play pro football for the Buffalo Bills. Do you remember him? Or maybe if you're an OSU fan, you might remember a 60s quarterback named Cornelius Green. Hmm? Remember him? And then there's a very famous Cornelius, Cornelius Vanderbilt. He earned a little bit of money in railroading. Have you heard of him before? Built a few houses around the country, Cornelius Vanderbilt, a tiny little abode in Manhattan. But I think the most famous Cornelius of all, at least to me, is the animated character Yukon Cornelius from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Do you remember him? His handlebar mustache, red hat, and that ice pick that he carried in fending off the abominable snowman, Yukon Cornelius. He has done true by a saint's name. But in general, Cornelius, not very popular. According to Mom365, a website that lists the hundred possible names for boys, Cornelius doesn't even make the top hundred. Sorry. But here in the Bible, in the tenth chapter of Acts, Cornelius is mentioned by name not just once, but on seven separate occasions. Such a deal. And what is most significant about Cornelius, other than that he was a Roman centurion, is that he is the first Gentile, the first non-Jewish person to be converted to Christianity. The first one who is not in that line of Abraham and David to confess Christ. Which is why the words that Peter speaks to him today and to his household are so powerful. Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him 
and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now I know to those of us who have been in the church for a long time, this may seem like yesterday's news. But imagine an outsider hearing these words for the very first time. God accepts everyone. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to come from a certain pedigree. You don't have to meet a certain set of requirements. Peter says, whoever fears God and does what is right is acceptable. On this day when we celebrate the baptism of Jesus and hear the booming voice from the heavens proclaiming Jesus as God's beloved Son, we also learn once again that there is absolutely no one whom God will not accept. It is also curious to me that the whole household of Cornelius gets in on the act. This happens several times in the book of Acts. When one person is baptized, they're baptized along with the whole household. The spouse, the children, the servants, anyone who's hanging around gets in on the flood of baptismal waters. It's as if God's salvation in the book of Acts is contagious. Like once it gets started, it just reaches out and gathers people in, enfolding everyone into the love and mercy of God. Since today is the baptism of Christ, you may have noticed that on the front of the bulletin, we have a picture of the baptism of Christ. Did you see that? This was taken about 30 AD with an icon camera, and we had it blown up just for this occasion. No, it wasn't. It's actually a painting. It's a painting done by a famous Renaissance artist named Andrea Veracchio. And also his pupil who helped him out with him, you may have heard his name. He was sort of a rising star. Leonardo da Vinci was his name. And it's believed they work in the shop together and that Leonardo is responsible for the angel on the bottom left, the one looking toward the baptism, and also the landscape in the background. We're not sure, but scholars think those are the parts that Leonardo actually painted. If you look at the painting closely, you will see that the Trinity is well represented. On the single central axis, you have the Father's hands reaching down in love, the dove of the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, front and center in the painting. Now, in addition to the dove that is coming down upon the head of Jesus, there is what appears to be a hawk flying over the head of John the Baptist. Did you catch that in the painting? I have no idea why that's there, but there's a hawk flying around. The angel that da Vinci painted on the left appears to be holding some of Christ's clothing, his tunic, perhaps, or outer garment. And that angel seems awestruck by the baptism. But the other angel's paying no attention to the baptism at all and seems to be wondering why the other angel is so enamored with the scene. John the Baptist isn't looking so good. His diet of locusts and wild honey hardly seems to be sustaining his gaunt body there. But I will give him kudos for the balancing act. He's holding the baptismal shell in one hand, a large cross staff in the other, right? All at the same time. The banner on the staff reads, Ecce Agnus Dei, Behold the Lamb of God. And somehow he's able to do all that while standing in the river. But what I find most curious is the baptism itself. 
They were in the River Jordan. It's barely ankle deep, by the way. And John the Baptist picks up what looks like a piddling amount of water to sprinkle it over the head of Jesus. How can you possibly baptize with such a little dab of water? Maybe it's good for your head, like when brill cream, a little dab will do you, but not with baptism. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says that Jesus came up out of the water. Here it doesn't even look like he got down into it. You see, I want enough water at baptism for a tidal wave of love. A crashing, splashing, gushing fountain that would drench all of humanity. I want enough baptismal water to flow from the River Jordan to every corner of the earth and to every person in the world. I do not want baptisms to be dainty and precise. I want them to be messy and lavish and overflowing. I want in baptism for people to actually get wet with the water of God's love and mercy, to be soaked through and through with Christ's acceptance. I want us from baptism to be sopping wet with the power of God's promise and purpose. If Cornelius and his whole family are baptism, I want them to need beach towels to sop it up. I want every child of God to be bathed in the riches of God's abundant life, while our ears are filled with the ringing echoes of this is my beloved child. Baptism, for me, is not for the faint of heart. It's for those who want to dive into the deep end of God's faithfulness and blessing. Now there's at least one more part about the painting that I really like if you take a look at it again. First of all, it's a big painting. I've seen it in person. It's at the Uffizi in Florence or Fienza if you've been to Italy. It's over six feet by six feet in person. In fact, it makes the Mona Lisa look like a postage stamp. It is a large painting. But the one thing that always jumps out at me at this painting is that the hands of Jesus are folded in prayer. As Jesus is being baptized, it's as if he is praying. The Son of God, ankle-deep in River Jordan, is offering a prayer that somehow, at least according to this Italian artist, baptism has driven Jesus to pray. What if that was the purpose of baptism in the first place? To do nothing else but to help us to pray. I mean, all the confirmation classes and Bible studies and sermon listening and worship attending aside, what if the purpose of baptism and remembering our baptism is simply to remind us that we need to pray? That is, that we need to invite God to be part of our lives. Now, I know that pastors, and maybe especially this pastor, likes to talk a lot about what's happening at baptism, the sort of theological underpinnings, how God's word is being stirred up in the water, how responsibility is being taken on by the parents and godparents, how we also are key players in the faith life of those being baptized. But what if the sole purpose of baptism is really only to drive us to pray, to help us to ask God to come more fully into our lives. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.